0: Fired up show starts right now, and welcome everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast, right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we bring you news and updates from the political world here in the United States. Uh, first of all, uh, some an announcement. Uh, as of last week, the national health emergency declaration for COVID nineteen has expired. And as a result, uh, the CDC is no longer reporting uh, case numbers uh, out to its media sources. Uh, But uh, we will look and see and find that information, if we can, somewhere else. And we'll bring it to you then. But for now, we will skip over our normal uh, procedure of reporting the case counts for COVID here in this country. Uh, But that doesn't mean that, A, the COVID-19 pandemic has ended. Or, B, that we need to be any less diligent in our practices to stay safe and protected from the disease. So, you know, mask up when it's necessary. Uh, practice that social distancing if you can. And uh, let's make sure that we are keeping ourselves safe uh, for our family, our loved ones, our community. All right. With that being said, we've got uh, a bunch of news to talk about um, This week, uh, one uh, story that I'm leading off with uh, actually came across my radar uh, shortly after I posted last week's podcast to the server. So, this one's dated May 7th, and it comes from Slate Magazine. And uh, the title is Three Cases in North Carolina, Decades of Democracy Undone. And uh, essentially... Uh, As we'll find out as we go through the article, Uh, North Carolina uh, had a uh, Supreme Court case uh, that overturned its uh, last gerrymandering uh, exercise. And uh, as of uh, last week, the uh, newly transformed and newly Republican uh, North Carolina Supreme Court uh, showing that it was becoming a full, faithful, and enthusiastic partner in the ongoing crusade to achieve disabling electoral suppression. So, what they did was they uh, essentially flexed the muscle of their newly minted 5-2 to two Republican uh, uh, priority in the Supreme Court in North Carolina. And uh, on April 28th, they issued three major decisions, uh, all following the new partisan margins, uh, which one newspaper, the, S- the Charlotte Observer, uh, deemed as, quote, sweeping blows to democracy in North Carolina. Uh, so, the, the rulings uh, impacted several key elements of the voter protections that were in place in North Carolina. Uh, for example, No longer would uh, the state court uh, intervene to protect voting rights. No longer would they fret over the intentional distortion of the political process. Uh, No longer, even more broadly, would the justices trouble the Republican General Assembly to govern within any boundary lines. And no longer would they even offer the pretense of judicial independence. Uh, according to the article, the new North Carolina Supreme Court is operating as an enabling caucus of the state Republican Party, full stop. So, in order to, to come to these three rulings, uh, the justices basically had to lay the groundwork and throw out certain elements of the rulebook. Uh, so, uh, back in two, uh, 2022, the preceding Supreme Court had issued final rulings invalidating the state's extreme political gerrymandering and its racially motivated voter ID law. In a move almost unknown to American law, this new Republican uh, court has decided to take up these cases on a motion for rehearing. Uh, and according to Slate, never before in the North Carolina Supreme Court's over 200 year history. Had it granted a rehearing based on a change in the tribunal's membership, so uh, one of the cases that came under reconsideration is uh, Harper v. Hall. Uh, the Republican majority gave a warm and uh, purportedly permanent embrace to partisan gerrymandering uh, with this with this case. Uh, it was uh, lauded by Chief Justice Paul Newby who said, Our Constitution expressly, expressly assigns the redistricting authority to the General Assembly subject to express limitations in the text. And this, this ruling falls in line with the uh, independent legislature theory, uh, which we've talked about on this program a couple of times now. And um, it's essentially, you know, they're saying that only the state legislature can address, um, you know, gerrymandering and and certain elements of voter control, uh, political distortion of the districting process, even extreme manipulation, which results in substantial and enduring handicapping of the electoral system, is, according to this new court, just fine. Uh, Justice Anita Earls. Uh, on the court, thundered uh, in dissent that the ruling, quote, stripped North Carolina voters of the right to choose their elected officials and also, quote, demolished the court's standing as an independent check on the excesses of the other two branches of government, end quote. So, you know, North Carolina's uh, new uh, Supreme Court is uh, basically uh, backstopping the uh, Republican-dominated legislature's efforts to disenfranchise, uh, interfere with, and restrict uh, voting access, uh, particularly, and one could argue almost exclusively, uh, against uh, black North Carolinians uh, for their access to the polls. Um, So that's one. The justices next use the same rehearing uh, maneuver uh, to uh, do in the state Supreme Court voter ID decision. Uh, what they did this time was they simply cast aside trial court and prior Supreme Court factual determinations that a new law implementing a voter identification requirement was meant to handicap black voters. Uh, And this is based on that only months before the High Court had concluded that the provisions of SB 824 were formulated, uh, quote, with an impermissible intent to discriminate against African Americans. The General Assembly had chosen intentionally to pass a law that required the specific IDs black voters disproportionately lack. So, Here we have the case where uh, in in recognition that, you know, certain types of voter ID are less likely to be in the possession of uh, black voters than other voters. Uh, They have specifically uh, gone out to make sure that uh, that ID choice uh, stands. So let me get let me give you a quote from Justice Phil Berger Jr., uh, who also happens to be the North Carolina Senate Majority Leader's son. Uh, he explained, quote, The people of North Carolina overwhelmingly support voter identification and other efforts to promote greater integrity and confidence in our elections. Close quote. All right. Let me um, do a little bit of translation on that and and kind of restore the hypocritical language to the top uh, And again, this is my opinion, um, but this is how this reads to me. The non-melanated people of North Carolina overwhelmingly support voter identification and other restrictive efforts to promote greater uh, integrity and confidence by the non-melanated majority in our state in our election process. So... You know the the idea here, and again, these this prior statement is my opinion. It's not attributed to any uh, anybody else but me. Is it just speaks to the hypocrisy uh, that we see coming out of many of these states uh, with their so-called high-minded uh, approaches to improving election integrity uh, and and uh, confidence in our elections. Uh, what what they want really is to find uh, as many ways as possible to exclude uh, voters who do not vote Republican uh, from the polls. And we have seen and talked about this in many different places. Uh, It is Texas's uh, decision to limit the number of ballot drop boxes per county to one in a state where traveling from one side of a county to another uh, could be an all day event. Uh, it is uh, you know, Florida's uh, removing hundreds of thousands of uh, voters from the polls uh, on a whim. It is Georgia eliminating hundreds more uh, thousands of voters right before an election that featured a heavily favored uh, African-American female uh, in the race for governor. Uh, it is all of these uh, kind of things. Uh, that, you know, the, the uh, MAGA right or the extreme right couch in these phrases of promoting greater integrity and confidence in our elections. Uh, and it is all the more reason why uh, the non-Republican voters out there, so, you know, Democrats, independents, libertarians, uh, those who disagree with these extreme right wing wing policies, need to uh, get out, get registered, get informed, and vote. Uh, We'll talk more about that at the the end of the the program, as we always do. So, the third piece in this this puzzle, um, the Republican jurist, and again, this is according to the article in Slate, ran the table by reversing a lower court decision extending voting rights for those convicted of a crime. The prior ruling had determined that electoral participation should be restored under the North Carolina Constitution once a prison term had been served rather than waiting for any period of probation or post-release supervision to be completed. Uh, this move placed 55,000 uh, North Carolinians back onto the, the voting rolls. Now. The new North Carolina Supreme Court debased a fundamental human right and eagerly cast aside norms of appellate review to pull it off. You know, and you know, according to the article, uh, this was just part of their trifecta of uh, disenfranchisement. And you know, as as uh, just another uh, state's case of trying to find. Whatever means possible to reduce the number of, uh, you know, democratic and independent voters, because uh, in in general uh, they outnumber Republican voters in just about every state. So you know the the power of gerrymandering uh, is, in its simplicity, the ability for a minority group to exercise oversized control over the political system by drawing and defining districts that feature uh, like-minded voters uh, into one single voting uh, district block. And, you know, we have seen this now uh, happening over the last five decades uh, as part of the Southern strategy and, and other considerations as the number one tool that you know, right-wing uh, Republicans have been using in order to solidify their hold on power here in the United States. So, we will keep you apprised on this North Carolina Supreme Court uh, collection of rulings and see what comes of them. If there's any action that is taken, uh, we will let you know. So, more to come on this subject uh, right here on the Fired Up podcast. And another news uh, that came out of the past week uh, the uh, COVID era uh, uh, immigration policy known as Title 42 uh, has ended uh, as of the middle of this week. And Republicans were um, screaming and shouting that there would be an overwhelming surge of uh, migrants coming across the border in the South and that you know the southern states were about to be overrun and oh my you know just clutching their pearls at how many uh, people of color would be coming across the uh, border to the US from uh, Mexico and other uh, countries to the South and at least in the preliminary reporting uh, the surge that was anticipated has not fully materialized. Now, granted, um, there are numbers that say as as many as nine thousand uh, immigrants a day are coming across the border, but that's nowhere near what uh, Republican lawmakers were uh, screaming about from the lecterns across this country uh, in terms of how many uh, migrants from you know the southern countries uh, would be flooding across the border. Now. You know, the, the, uh, the end of Title 42 means that the prior uh, legislative or, or legal uh, plan, which was Title 8, uh, goes back into effect and essentially uh, just continues a, a version of the process where uh, immigrants who have not gone through the approved process uh, to seek asylum in this country, for example, uh, can be uh, arrested and turned around and deported back to their countries of origin, and you know the the upshot is that you know Title Eight, uh, which you know was the the law down there uh, up until the pandemic, uh, has just as many teeth in it as the uh, Title 42 law without the uh, humanitarian considerations for, you know, people coming, uh, fleeing you know, their, their home country's uh, crime or terror or COVID or, you know, anything else. Uh, and, you know, it, it just means that there are still going to be, you know, a lot of uh, immigrants coming across the border Many of whom are seeking asylum uh, and refuge from the, the unbelievably harsh conditions of their home countries. Uh, and, you know, it, it is another show in the uh, hypocrisy of the, the extreme right wing in particular, but um, Republicans in general, that, you know, they, they don't want this wave of migrants coming into the country. Now, you know, to, to get an idea of, you know, what I think is the hypocrisy of this situation, uh, there were some news stories that came out of uh, one of my favorite states to report on Florida where uh, there, the, the migrant population, um, by and large, in the state of Florida has fled the state. So, what does that mean? Well, when it comes to... Uh, labor that's used to build new houses, when it comes to labor that's used to pick the strawberries that grow on farms all over the state of Florida, when it comes to migrants that make up the bulk of the uh, hospitality industry people, that is the uh, people that work in the hotels, that, you know, clean the rooms and make the beds and serve the food and, you know, uh, man the rides uh, at you know, Disney World and other places. Uh, what, it, <clears throat> what the news has been reporting is that, you know, everywhere you look, uh, you see incomplete buildings with no workers uh, working on them. You see, you know, fields and fields of produce not getting picked. And you see, you know, staffs in uh, hotels, uh, restaurants and bars, uh, you know, basically decimated, because the people who uh, took those jobs have left the state. And, you know, the, the idea is that if you, you know, if you are a, a believer in getting rid of um, illegal and legal immigrants into this country, uh, the, the question you need to answer is, who's going to do the work that they do, that you know, most uh, natural-born Americans, uh, particularly you know those in the non-melanated category, uh, are not willing to do. Those jobs have to get done. Somebody's got to build those houses. Somebody's got to bring you your dinner when you go to a restaurant. Somebody's got to clean your room when you stay in you know in a resort hotel or in a hotel in general. So if you don't want to do that work, uh, it really kind of works against you to make it you know, I- impossible or extremely difficult for people who are willing to take those uh, lower paying jobs and do that work and you know, pick your fruit and build your houses and, you know, and, and work on your roads and so forth. Uh, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot. So, you know, the the question is out there then, um, how do uh, the people who are exercising this control, uh, exercising these rules, uh, how do you propose that we get all of that stuff done? Who's going to do it? Uh, Is it you? Is it, you know, your son, your daughter who's going to go out and, you know, sweat in the field for 12 hours a day for, you know, you know a, a little more than minimum wage uh, to pick the strawberries or you know uh, pick the potatoes or other produce that grows uh, in your state. Right now, that work is being done by immigrants uh, who come to this country uh, because even at the low wages that these jobs pay, it is still, uh, monumentally more money than they make in their home countries, assuming that there is a job for them to do there. So you know we we are are continually seeing this effort uh, led by uh, Republicans and and more so by uh, the right wing or MAGA Republicans to eliminate uh, this group of people from our uh, national uh, tapestry when there's no plan on the other side of that to uh... get the work done that these people do you know it, it's it's quite simple uh... these are the jobs that you know and and i'll be blunt that no white people in america want to do uh... but these individuals who come to this country seeking a better way uh... use these jobs and uh, support their families and send money home to their families still in uh, you know their country of origin, uh, and you know uh, make it all happen. So you know as, as we look at the the politics and the policies that are coming out of these red states, uh, we need to ask ourselves: Well, okay, if they're going to you know minimize. Or drastically reduce or eliminate uh, these migrant workers from coming into our country. Who's going to do the work? Who's going to pick up where they have left off? Who's willing to to spend you know 12 hours a day uh, bent over picking strawberries for you know uh, eight or nine dollars an hour? Uh, who's going to uh, work the double shifts at uh, your local Starbucks uh, making your you know mocha lattes uh, for you know what that pays, and you know if it's if it's not going to be you, then you're part of the problem, because the the realization has to set in that you know these are people who are willing and able to do the jobs that most Americans don't want to do. So if if that's your if that's your game, if your idea of a better America is one without these immigrants, without these migrants coming into our country, then you need to tie an apron around your waist and go wash some dishes in a restaurant or, you know, make up, uh, you know, 30 or 40 uh, hotel rooms a day or, you know, Stand on your feet and serve uh, dinners or lunches uh, or breakfasts to you know, patrons in restaurants for 8 to 10 hours or more a day. If you're not willing to do that work, if you're not willing to pick up that slack in order to help the country, then the idea that you want to keep uh, immigrants out really is um, a, a, a shoot-yourself-in-the-foot proposition. Because at the end of the day, uh, it's only going to impact the availability of produce, the availability of you know homes being built at reasonable cost, which people can afford. Uh, it, it's all tied together. And the more that I hear uh, these politicians talking about eliminating uh, people crossing the border or making it so restrictive that people who are seeking asylum have to, in fact, stay outside the country and wait, you know, up to, you know, a year or two years for their case to be heard uh, in order uh, uh, for them to enter the country uh, as a a refugee from their country. Uh, It's just, to me, it's just insane that, you know, we um, think that simply eliminating these people from coming into the country Uh, Solves this problem uh, because it it does perhaps reduce the number of uh, immigrants, um, hopefully with appropriate um, technology and resources at the border. Those who are crossing illegally uh, can be dealt with Uh, it. It also uh, means that we need to have more and deeper conversations with uh, our neighbor countries to the south. And perhaps come up with some solutions, solutions uh, such as, you know, asylum processing centers or, you know, uh, refugee way stations uh, where these people can receive uh, the the attention and, you know, get their documentation together and do all of the things that they need to do to become, um, you know, to apply for legal citizenship status in this country uh, and not just, uh, you know, sneak across borders and risk being arrested uh, and deported or attacked and robbed as so many of them are in their journeys uh, heading north. So, you know, the, the idea that, you know, and, and I've actually heard this recently, that there are a few Republican um, congresspeople that are, are actively talking about literally closing the southern border to the United States, uh, while that may seem like a practical solution to the influx of immigrants from the south, uh, it is only going to exacerbate uh, a labor problem that we already have in this country. So you know you need to think uh, deeply, or, or more deeply, and more consideration given to what the impact of you know what you're talking about when it comes to immigration into this country is going to mean Uh, because I think that if we don't take into account that there are things that need to get done uh, at the low ends of the pay scale that you know the 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 majority of uh, rank and file Americans uh, are not going to do or not willing to do or don't want to do uh, we're going to end up with you know shortages. We're going to end up with issues. We're going to end up with industries that have to shut down. If hotels can't find, you know, the the housekeeping staff that they need, which are typically uh, made up of you know immigrants uh, to this country, uh, then what? If you know, if if farms can't get labor. To pick their produce and you know package it and get it to market, what happens to all that food that's not getting to your whole food store? What happens to all that food that you know is not getting to market? Uh, that's just going to exacerbate the 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 food hunger problem in this country, uh, and you know again it's all a snowball rolling down a hill. So just some thoughts to to think about. Sorry for the rant, but it it just gets my goat when I hear these these politicians standing up uh, in front of the cameras pontificating on how, you know, the the American border is porous and we need to stop this and we need to end uh, immigration into this country, there needs and there needs to be tougher laws and there needs to be more military at our border. We need to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the the key is we need to think beyond just the immediate problem and potential solutions and look at the long term problems that can be created. Uh, particularly as we look at so much economic uncertainty in this country. All right. So let's take our break here. Uh, When I come back, uh, I'm going to spend the second segment. We're going to talk about the 8000 pound gorilla that happened this week. And I want to give you my thoughts on the Donald Trump town hall that occurred uh, on CNN. So we'll be right back after this message. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, We will return in a moment.
1: A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council.
0: And we're back. Welcome back to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. All right. As promised, we're going to talk about the 8,000-pound gorilla in the room uh, and uh, some of the surrounding issues uh, around said gorilla. Uh, But first, I have a question to pose to uh, mainstream Republicans. Um, And the question, quite simply, is this. Uh, How much is enough? How much of uh, the the party that allows a congressperson who has patently lied about his credentials uh, to remain seated in the House of Representatives solely to protect a slim majority? Um, How much or how much longer... Uh, are we going to tolerate a sitting Supreme Court Justice who, along with his wife, uh, consistently flouts laws requiring disclosure of significant financial events? Um, how long are we going to uh, put up with uh, Congress people from various districts uh, around the country who continue to promote lies? and untrue statements and uh, denigrate other people in uh, the country? Uh, And uh, most importantly, how long are we going to continue to be subjected uh, to a former president who was impeached twice, uh, indicted uh, on on federal crime once, convicted or found uh, liable for uh assaulting and defaming uh a a woman uh, uh you know some you know 30 years ago uh how long are you as republicans going to put up with this representing your party uh, republicans uh historically were a party of um, legitimate business growth uh they were a party uh, looking to expand uh, their incl- inclusion uh, in their party uh, from many different segments of the population. Today, however, uh, it is a party of, you know, the, the influence of uh, millionaires and billionaires. It is the party of, of influence receiving from corporations who uh, now, because of a, a Supreme Court ruling, uh, understand that you know, their money equals speech uh, and you know, essentially has uh, ignored or flouted or disregarded uh, pretty much every rule in the book. You know? And the, the latest uh, example of this occurred in the middle of the week last week with a town hall that was carried live on CNN in prime time and featured former President Trump who proceeded to spend uh, 70 minutes uh, essentially uh, building a free campaign ad uh, based on you know, the lies and, and half-truths and, and falsehoods and stretched imaginations uh, that he has been talking about ever since he came down the escalator in Trump Tower uh, in 2015. So I saw the town hall meeting. Um, you know, granted it, you know, extended past my normal bedtime because my job requires me to get up at four in the morning. Uh, but, uh, this had, I had to watch this in so that I could understand, um, what is going on. You know, as we say on this show, you, you have to be informed by all sources, including sources you don't normally listen to, uh, in order to get the full picture. So what I heard, and hopefully if you were listening and paying attention, what you heard was former President Trump standing up there and again repeating many of the same lies and falsehoods uh, that he told throughout uh, his campaign, uh, throughout his presidency, and in the uh, post-Trump presidency uh, and you know, basically you saw Trump at his finest um, doing what he does. Uh, I guess you could say doing what he does best. So uh, there have been a lot of discussion. CNN has been roundly criticized for giving uh, Donald Trump that platform for acquiescing to allow for an audience that was uh, exclusively Uh, Trump voters or, you know, uh, independent or, you know, unaccounted uh, voters leaning toward uh, Trump and, you know, basically served him a a plate full of softballs for him to, you know, to whack at for 70 minutes. Um, I went through and after listening to the broadcast, um, I went to some of my sources Uh, for fact checking. Uh, And for example, factcheck.org listed uh, a a collection of the, oh, I'd guess more than uh, 25 uh, lies or falsehoods or or false claims that he made during that town hall meeting. So I want to go through uh, some of what they said and what they came up with. For example, um, They claim, you know, they report that uh, Trump claimed the conservative group True the Vote found Democrats stuffing ballot boxes with, quote, millions of votes. And it was caught, quote, on government cameras. And Fact Check concludes that it did not. Trump falsely claimed that he, quote, didn't ask Georgia Secretary of State Brad Rappensperger to find more, find him more votes. Uh, in a January 2nd, 2021 call, Trump told Raffensperger, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which was one more than Trump needed to win the state. So Trump is denying that he asked that when, as, as you know, we all should know by now, uh, the call was recorded. We have him on tape making that request. Uh, another one. Uh, then Vice President Mike Pence didn't have the legal right to send electoral votes back to the state, contrary to Trump's claim that Pence, quote, did something wrong by not rejecting the votes in states he lost. Uh, And, you know, that also uh, was found, uh, the statement Trump made was false. Trump falsely claimed that we have open borders, when each month border officials have apprehended and expelled tens of thousands of people who illegally enter the country, and this is a point that Republicans make time and time again—that uh, you know the the border is open and porous—and yet they don't report on you know as I said the tens of thousands of people uh, to that are expelled, that are deported, uh, who enter the country illegally. Uh, he made an unsubstantiated claim that many of the immigrants coming illegally across the southern border are people f- released from prisons and mental institutions. This has been fact-checked to be totally false. Uh, they, the, the countries to our south are not opening up their prisons and their mental wards and sending you know, these, these individuals northward to America. Another point uh, that was was checked, the former president wrongly claimed that Presidential Records Act allowed him to negotiate the return of presidential materials to the National Archives and Records Administration. This also is patently not true. There is no process or procedure for a former president to negotiate anything uh, on the return of presidential materials. Under the Presidential Records Act, uh, the uh, National Archive is uh, made the custodian of all presidential uh, papers, notes, reports, uh, and, and so forth. Now, while former presidents can keep uh, you know, materials and letters and things that are of a personal nature, uh, anything relating to to their duties as president during their time in office uh, is, uh, is submitted to the National Archive and becomes the property of the people of the United States. He also claimed that while you know, his, his home at Mar-a-Lago was raided uh, by the FBI which it was actually based on a legal search warrant uh, that was obtained uh, for Uh, classified documents that uh, were believed to be uh, held at Mar-a-Lago by the former president. He also made the point that no one has looked into the 1,850 boxes of records that uh, Joe Biden had in his possession when in fact those records were uh, donated uh, from his Senate years to the University of Delaware. Uh, there's no evidence that they contain classified information or that Biden refused to give them back as uh, Trump said in fact once documents uh, were found uh, the uh, Biden staff actually reached out to National Archives to inform them that they had found these documents and that they were uh, returning them Trump also claimed that we were energy independent during his administration but uh, according to Fact Check, the U.S. never attained 100% self-sufficiency and still relied on energy imports under Trump. So the the detail on that is uh, his implication was that uh, if we were energy independent, that we don't need to import any, um, any oil or any natural gas and so forth from outside the United States. The true fact is uh, those imports did not stop, but... The exports that we had from, you know, drilling and and efforts here in this country uh, actually were greater than the amount uh, that we were importing. So energy independent is uh, something of a stretch. We actually had a net positive um, uh, balance on our energy uh, import versus export. He wrongly claimed that U.S. gasoline prices reached $9 under Biden. The highest weekly average price paid under uh, President Biden was about $5 in June of 2022. And since has come down uh, more than two, almost $3 uh, a gallon. And he claimed, uh, Trump claimed that under Roe v. Wade, uh, they could, and it's a quote, they could kill the baby after the baby was born let that sink in for a second the court opinion allowed states to prohibit abortion after fetal viability with exceptions for the mother's life and health so you know he uh, also put forward uh, in the interview and talked about uh, referring to uh, false claims of vote fraud and this has been a, a much discussed and continually debunked argument from the former president. Uh, he uh, filed more than 60 lawsuits uh, after the 2020 election uh, where he was claiming that there was election fraud. And in every last one of them, no instance of election fraud was found. And in fact, many of them were thrown out for, uh, of the court for lack of merit or lack of standing. Um, he, was retur- he was referring to the 2,000 mules documented by conservative filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza, which purported to provide evidence that thousands of so-called, quote, mules were employed to illegally stuff ballot uh, drop boxes with fraudulent ballots. The film was based on research from the conservative group True the Vote, which used geo-tracking data of cell phones and noted people who were near numerous ballot drop boxes, uh, and liberal non-profit. We reviewed, uh, and this is Fact Check, we reviewed the film's claims and found evidence lacking. In one part of the uh, town hall, uh, CNN anchor Caitlin Collins asked Trump about his January 2nd, 2021 phone call to Georgia Secretary of State ba- Brad Raffensperger. Uh, which has become the focus of a criminal investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office into whether Trump tried to illegally overturn the, the state's 2020 presidential election outcomes. Asked if he would still make that call today, knowing that it would lead to a criminal investigation, Trump said there is nothing wrong with the call and that he was merely, quote, questioning the election. Um, Collins, uh, fact check him on it, asked saying you asked him to find you votes Trump replied I didn't ask him to find anything and that is false because as I said we have it on tape where he's asking Raffensperger to find him enough votes so that he could win the state after Joe Biden had already been certified and recertified as the winner in Georgia. You know, what he said to Raffensperger on the call you know, as recorded is quote I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state, close quote. Uh, and that's that's what Trump said to Raffensperger on the call. Um, and he, he further clarified by uh, telling Raffensperger to look in Cobb and Fulton counties, which were both won by Biden. Uh, uh, you will find you will be at 11,779 within minutes because Fulton County is totally corrupt, he said on the call. Uh, Another subject that uh, they dived into uh, uh, debated uh, that Pence didn't have the right to reject electoral votes. Trump was asked if he owed his Vice President Mike Pence an apology over what happened during the January 6th Capitol riot and Trump's repeated attempts to push Pence to refuse to count electoral votes? Trump's reply was no, because he did something wrong, Trump said. He should have sent the votes back to state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. Uh, Fact Check uh, reviewed that with a constitutional expert who told him that F- Pence did not have the legal right to change or reject the electoral votes. The Electoral Count Act, which was signed into law in 1887, says the vice president is simply supposed to hand the tellers the state certifications after he opens them and then the tellers are then to read these documents and make a list of the votes. So, you know, the the idea is, you know, Trump was looking to flout a, you know, hundred and something odd year law that's on the books that has worked, you know, flawlessly uh, through uh, 46 presidential election cycles in this country. And, and the thing is, and all of this comes back to the question I posed a few minutes ago, uh, this, the question to uh, the, the mainstream Republicans out there, uh, when is enough enough? When are you guys going to realize that um, the, the ideas that the, the extreme right wing of your party is pushing forward, that the, the MAGA Republicans, the white supremacists, the white nationalists, uh, when are you going to realize that these ideas uh, are going to spill over into the broader American community? Um, you know, and I-, I give as uh, proof or evidence of what I mean by, th- by that with what um, Brent Eastwood of the website 1945 uh, said in a, uh, article, uh, that came out on, uh, Saturday, the 13th, uh, the title is, Donald Trump just said the stupidest thing ever. And I'm, I'm going to read some portions of this and, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit on the other side. Um, he writes, Donald Trump suggested America default on its debt. That would be a massive mistake. Um, And he goes, in this week's town hall televised by CNN, Donald Trump mentioned something alarming, but this might be his most insane idea to date. He said that if the Democrats do not give in to Republican pressures for spending cuts, it would be fine to let the government default on its debt of $31.4 trillion. This type of political brinksmanship is nothing new for Donald Trump. But it shocked financial experts and lawmakers from Trump's party. So process that for a second. We've all heard in recent weeks from, you know, uh, from the Fed chair to Janet Yellen to, uh, you know, to everybody and back. That defaulting on our debt uh, is something that we cannot allow to happen. That you know, it would just create a catastrophe. Of financial consequences not just here in this country but around the world uh, so the article goes on uh, it says consequences of the default negotiations between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill continue to be stuck in the mud ahead of the June 1 deadline to lift the debt ceiling a default would shut down the government and create a ripple that could result in a financial crisis in markets around the world The value of stocks and bonds would be negatively affected and ordinary American investors with 401k and IRA accounts would be particularly damaged. Payments to government workers, retirees on pensions, and veterans who look for monthly payments would cease. It would also result in layoffs and lower economic growth leading to a recession. So process that for a second. Um, the a, a default on our debt would catastrophically impact not just uh, the the people Republicans don't like. It would catastrophically affect everyone, farmers, uh, labor workers, union workers. Uh, you know, even uh, millionaires and billionaires would see an impact because the financial markets would uh, fall. Uh, and you know the article goes on said said, uh, this nearly happened before. Uh, this glimpse into Armageddon happened in 2011 when the government came close to default. The government's credit rating was downgraded and the S&P 500 dipped 20% that year. Uh, Republicans in the Senate, however, do not support Trump's sentiment. GOP lawmakers mainly agreed with Janet Yellen that a default would be disastrous, and that Congress would find a way to avert it. Republicans on Capitol Hill work to create distance between their financial views and Trump's. Uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas said to the Hill that nobody thinks default is a good idea. Nobody. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Alaska said, I don't think anybody suggesting that we have to do a default is wise policy or wise strategy for this country. She said that Trump certainly doesn't impact her thinking on the subject. Senator John Thune of South Dakota explained that most people recognize we need to do a deal here. So, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that, you know, the effects of uh, defaulting on our debt uh, is, is, is and would be wide-reaching and um, generally disastrous for just about everybody in this country. Uh, and the article goes on to talk about uh, that it would be disastrous for Trump supporters. Uh, he, st- he cites, they could lose in their investment accounts and perhaps fail to receive government transfer payments that they depend on to pay bills. Uh, of course, you know, he's saying how you know, Trump treated this as a throwaway line, but as we've learned in the past, uh those those type of throwaway lines have a bad habit of turning into uh an action policy for certain segments uh of the extreme right of the Republican party uh the article continues as judging from what republican support in the senate it appears there is room for compromise coming from the right the more conservative populists in the house may not agree with the senators but they will eventually get in line and hopefully, the president and his Democrat allies in Congress can agree to a compromise and allow some spending cuts. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, uh, it's you know his words to God's ears that you know cooler heads and 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 more wiser minds uh, on both sides of the aisle will prevail, and a reasonable compromise will occur. Now, the best thing that could happen, uh, which is what has happened, you know, numerous times in the past, you know, when the issue of the debt ceiling has come up, that Congress simply passes a clean debt ceiling bill that raises the debt limit uh, with no strings attached, no other provisions attached to it. Uh, my thinking, and, you know, I'm just, you know, one guy out here, um, I think that the, the Republican strategy is to push this right up to the wall uh, to see if they can get the democrats to cave on spending cuts Uh, but ultimately the compromise uh, could very well be that the debt ceiling and budget cuts will be separated into two uh, separate items the democrats will agree to a public promise to address the budget cuts that the Republicans are proposing and come up with a compromise on that and for that concession the Republicans will acquiesce and give them uh, a debt ceiling increase now there's one other thing that you may or may not have heard in this deal and it bears paying attention to and keeping track of a, uh, a debt ceiling agreement Uh, If it's agreed to in the current session or it's agreed to as part of some uh, subsequent, you know, deal making that goes on is only going to run for a little less than a year. It's going to run to March of uh, next year. So it's it's kicking the can a little bit down the road. What is needed is a long term debt solution uh, that. can include, you know, some agreements on, you know, budgetary limits and so forth. Uh, that also, in my opinion, should incru- include a hard look at the defense budget, which is by far the largest component of our uh, national budget. And you know, find you know the, the waste and, and other things in that budget that can be eliminated in order to bring down. Uh, the expenses that we face. You know, the defense budget has always been, you know, one of the third rails of uh, political process. Uh, You know, nobody wants to touch defense spending because so many uh, congressmen and senators have defense industries in their districts and they don't want to see, you know, cuts to that and impacts from, you know, any potential job loss, etc. However, there are bigger things at play here. You know, there are you know, serious considerations with uh, the care of the, the rank-and-file Americans out there, as, as I said a, a moment ago, people who re- re- rely on Social Security checks, people who um, you know, have all of these needs that are funded through government programs that would be shut down in the event of a default on our debt Uh, so you know there there's a bigger world out here that republicans need to consider and we have to as the voters take it upon ourselves to remind them of that fact so to that end you know the the action item for us as the voters of the united states of america is to communicate uh hot and heavy with our elected officials in washington and let them know you know that you know a, a, a debt ceiling bill needs to be passed uh, a clean bill would be best but if a bill needs to have uh, a certain set of budget cuts uh, attached to it then those cuts need to be discussed and worked out or a third option is a clean debt ceiling bill with a commitment by the democrats to negotiate in good faith on budget cuts that both sides can come to agreement with uh, down the road, so that you know our spending could be limited. Now, one of one of the proposals is to limit the uh, the budget to what was uh, set out in twenty twenty two, and that will be fiscal year twenty twenty two, which was at the start of the pandemic before the impacts of COVID uh, hit our our, our budgets and our expenses that you know is one reasonable idea that yes we could limit to you know 2022 levels uh, and also uh, the idea of a 1% annual increase in the budget is also something that is doable um, and you know the the other cuts uh, in my opinion are too draconian for right now uh, our economy, although recovering and in, in fairly good shape and strong is still not, uh, at a pre pandemic robust level that it was. Uh, so, you know, any damage that's done to our, our, our budgetary process could lead back into, you know, a, a, uh, recession or, you know, if, if deep enough, if they default, might even turn into a depression, uh, and that's unacceptable. So our action item, as always, let's reach out to our senators in Washington, our um, our congresspeople in Washington, to take action on on this before the June first deadline. And if it looks like they can't achieve a compromise uh, marrying the two bills together, separate them, submit a clean deficit spending, and commit to uh, honest negotiations in good faith on finding solutions to our budgetary problems. Uh, in, in in any event, at a minimum, there needs to be action taken. They can't kick the can down the road. So uh, what do you think about that? Uh, send an email to the show at radio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your viewpoints on how you think uh, Republicans and Democrats need to work this problem out in the next two weeks. Uh, so let me know. Again, that email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. And uh, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Uh, as always, time flies when you know we're, we're ranting about politics in the United States. Everybody, please stay safe. Uh, be aware that although the national emergency on the pandemic is over, the pandemic itself still exists. So please keep yourselves, your families and your community safe. I thank you all for listening each week here to the Fired Up podcast. And I look forward to doing all of this again in seven days.